Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Legendary Ray Charles singing America the Beautiful on this Memorial Day week. Don't know where you're listening to this or when you're listening to this, but hopefully you took the opportunity to think about the men and women who have given their lives in defense of this country. Black, white, young, old, from all parts of the country, the men and women who have defended America, and we remember them. It's also a great time to get together with people you like to have some barbecue and other things. Is there a version of this where, uh, where you're from? No, no version of Memorial day. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, we're doing this before the actual holiday. So hopefully on that holiday, you'll have a chance to have some barbecue, but then, you know, any day is a good day to have some barbecue. (laughs) If you're in the South, if you're in the South or any other part of the planet, Our guest this week is 
retired Marine Colonel David Cuvion, who will talk about his experience in the military. He will talk about his experiences in Iraq after the fall of Baghdad. Colonel Cuvion was placed in charge of the Wasit province of Iraq. Now that's almost 2 million people. Now here is a guy from Bruley who initially wanted to be a priest. Now he is in the Marines in the middle of a war zone and has been told he's going to be in charge of an entire province. Iraq has 18 provinces. Provinces are similar to the 50 states here in the U.S. And he was in charge of one of them. So he talks a lot about his life coming up, his motivations in the military, and he's very candid about his experiences in Iraq. And we're going to do a couple of conversations with him. This was the first one. And I actually learned a lot about Kuv in this conversation that I didn't even know, which was good. So, you know, if they nod at you, they can't see you. It's radio. Hey, sorry. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, Colonel Kuvion, who is, in my opinion, one of the finest Americans you can ever meet. He is absolutely interested in charity and helping others, and we appreciate him for his service. And, you know, this year's Smokin' was the first year he didn't get a chance to attend because he was out of the country. So, yeah, I'm sure he'll be there at next year's event. So let's hear from him. Retired Marine Colonel David Kuvion next on The Clay Young Show. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the Podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Back with my buddy, retired Marine Colonel David Kuvion, and he's got, he's got the, the best email signature line that uh that i've seen it's like what's what's all that stuff in the signature line it's like what the, you know, the, the, the killer that everybody loves is avoider of yard work the, the avoider of yard work <laughs> not chef not that i'm hot old. dog or something yeah, not that i'm successful at avoiding it because my wife jumps on that but i sure hate doing yard work i do not like you it. know what i don't i don't mow the lawn anymore but i like the gardens man man i never my dad made me do that my dad was in the tulips yeah so he wanted to do tulips my grandfather had a garden and you know just oh man and i remember pushing the lawnmower like it was over my head <laughs> for a two-acre lot and I, no, two acres I, brother yeah and so you're working big, out there it was a big one and, and then that. louisiana summers out there because that's when you got to do the lawn here's the thing about our summers with the rain if you cut it on Tuesday, yeah. you're probably back on it on Thursday. Yeah. Friday at the latest. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the way it is. And, you know, yeah. I, I finally learned to set my uh, uh, the deck blade on my on my riding board now about uh, four inches, so it kind of it looks it looks high all the time. So it, you know, it, so if it that's gets cheating, higher, it just man. looks that's like that. Cheating, you can't do that. <laughs> so you know, the, when we first met, uh, it was not long after you had gotten back from Iraq. Now. Kuv, as he's affectionately known by all of us, what was the governor of the Wasit province in Iraq. Iraq has 17 provinces that are like states. And Kuv was the, the governor there put in charge of that area. It used to be the Kut province, I believe, until like 1976. Is yeah, right? Al-Kut is the uh, capital city of that yeah. province. So 
Uh, he was there, and and you know we I know that uh, did you tell me you're working on a book? Yeah, I am. And so that's going to be great. And you know, well read guy. You love the blues, and we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about that. We'll take our time, but uh, let's start at the beginning. Getting into military, uh, you went to LSU. Why why'd you choose a life in the armed services? Uh, I, I can tell you. Um I've always been a big reader, and you know that. Mm-hmm. I, read, right. I, read, I read voraciously, and I've right. read a lot of books. And I remember getting a, a trilogy when I was about eight years old. It was okay. a paperback trilogy, uh, War in the Pacific. And, of course, War in the Pacific concerns Marines. It was all about Marines. And I, I read that. I read those books, and it was just – I knew then I wanted to be a Marine. <laughs> now, amazingly enough, about, I was maybe another two, two years or so after that, I'm, I'm – you know, my dad was a coach, and uh, he always wore this funny-looking cap yeah. uh, on his head all the time and things. So he had, he had, you know, this was the old-style 50s, 60s, and he had, uh, you know, football pants on all yeah, the time and yeah. football cleats, and yeah, he had this funny-looking yeah. cap. Well, it took me a couple of years before I realized that cap was a Marine Corps cap. Mm-hmm. And I finally, he says, when he said, oh, yeah, I was a Marine, and I was just, like, floored. But uh, throughout throughout my whole my high school, as a matter of fact, even when uh, uh, you know you do the, the the thing in the yearbook and everybody everybody pretty much knew that's where I was headed. I, yeah. was, I was going yeah. that direction. So you went to LSU. No, no, no actually, I joined. I joined right out of high joined school. Joined right out of high school. This what? was 1974, and in 1974, you're a little bit younger than me. Yeah. In 1974, the military was not looked on very well. This right. was the tail end of the Vietnam. Right. Uh, era. I'm considered a Vietnam veteran, sure. so I never went over there. Sure. Um, it was the tail end of the Vietnam, uh, Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. People did not have a good opinion of the military or military men. Uh, a lot of Vietnam veterans still feel disgruntled about that. Right. And, uh, but I joined, I volunteered, and people were astounded, flabbergasted. That, I mean, it, you know, when I was in high school, I grew my hair long. I had long hair, <laughs> you know, being from Brulee and Port Allen, you know, people, what's the guy doing with long hair? Right, and, you right, know, that right, was right. another thing, too. That's and, right. and so, but then I joined the Marine Corps, and really, you know, that screwed them all up. Well, how the hell did that happen? Um, but I, I felt I wanted to be a Marine at eight years old, but as I grew in high school, I felt I owed a debt of gratitude to my country. And I felt that was the way that I was going to repay it. I mm-hmm. was going to go serve my country and, and do that. Do you think, and I want you to continue, but I want to throw this in there because we'll bounce around. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unorthodox. We have conversations. You and I, you and I converse yeah. like that anyway. And so. it, 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 this is, you, you guys are just getting an opportunity to eavesdrop on these kinds of conversation sands the scotch and cigars. <laughs> I'm a bourbon guy. So. That's right. That's right. No so, well, that's right. Well, we'll do bourbon too, you know, but um, th- it's cyclical because I think there's a little bit of that lack of respect for the military now, I think, in the country. Maybe not as aggressive as obviously in that period, but there is disdain uh, from some in the media disdain from some public figures about the military, but that, but where I was going was you talked about owing a debt to your country. Compare that to now. Do you think that still exists with young men? Uh, yeah. Matter of okay. fact, Tuesday night, I uh, went to Broadmoor Methodist church. They invited me to be a guest speaker for mm-hmm. a ceremony they had for 85 high school, um, 
students, seniors, seniors who mm -hmm. had joined the Army, the Marine Corps, and the Army National Guard. Okay. And they had a ceremony for them, uh, just a celebration as well as uh, being the keynote speaker. I was allowed to swear them into the armed forces. Wow. So I looked over that, those 85 young people, and they were all creeds and colors. Yeah. Um, young, uh, I'm not saying they're high school students, but they were short, tall, mm -hmm. um, male, female, yeah. black, white, yeah, yeah. Asian, yeah. Um, uh, Middle Eastern. That's fantastic. And, and, and then yeah. one of the other things I pointed out was sitting behind them, you know, they were in the chair set up in the front, uh, sitting behind them was their family and friends. And they had a lot of support hmm. about what they, were, what they were doing there. So I talked to the recruits, but I went back and talked to the parents yeah. and the family, too. What did you get from the parents? There, I got a lot of pride mm -hmm. in, in them. And I explained to them that, you know, they now lost their children. They, they weren't going to be the same mm -hmm. people that, that they grew up with, the same right. kids that they grew right. up with. Those young men and women made a, made a decision. They made a choice. Mm -hmm. For whatever the choice is, I explained my choice was a debt to my country. Right. Whatever their choice was, whether education, whether sure. it was a goal, whether sure. it was, you know, to make something of themselves, however it was, those families lost that, that person. They were going to be changed. Mm -hmm. I also made the point that um, you played sports a, mm -hmm. a little bit. And you Absolutely. Had to, and that some, somewhere along the line, somebody told you, you know, this event is going to be, you know, the greatest thing in your life. You'll yeah. remember this for the rest of your life. And oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But I pointed out to those young people that boot camp, joining the service, will absolutely change their life. Right. And it will be a seminal part of their life for the rest of their lives, whether they only serve one enlistment, whether they stay in for life or whatever they do. They are going to make a fundamental change in their life, and that experience will change them forever. And, mm. and that, so you can say... You know, I, I get a little bent out of shape by coaches going on and yeah. about that. Oh, it's a sporting event. Yeah, it's a, it's a sporting event. Big damn deal. Yeah. Talk about something that really well, so means something. I feel that way about sports in general, you know, the older you get. And you, it's so interesting you say that because I think we throw the word hero around way too easily now. Now, someone who has, say, a broken leg and they're competing in a game because they don't want to let their team down. To me, you can probably say, you know, that's a heroic effort because that's someone who's thinking about the team and not about himself or herself. But those opportunities are, are you know, few and far between. A guy scoring 50 points in a basketball game is not heroic. No. It's spectacular to see. But a kid... It's a seminal event and, and an, a, a wonder of athletics. And I think, now I'm going to piss some people off here. Okay. Um, I like that. The young, the young man played for Southern and got paralyzed during the Georgia football game. Yeah, Gales. And I'm not taking any away from that young man because he's got a struggle in his life and he's facing it bravely and there's no question about it. But yeah. they use the term hero for him. And I get a little bent out of shape about that. I, again, I respect the young man. No, I know, I know what you mean. What I doing. know what you mean. But yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a young Marine yeah. from Plaquemine, Louisiana. His name is Clark. Yeah. Clark was blown up in Iraq. Wow. Lost both legs. Lost the use of one of his arms or has significant thing. That kid is a hero. Yeah. The, the struggles that kid is doing to yeah. remake his life. Yeah. From nothing. Yeah. To 
back and doing it. That that's well, that's so, heroic. Okay. So I agree with you. I think in terms of I think and, and you know what you know, you know the media mm-hmm. in Baton Rouge makes a lot of stuff about that, but 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 one kid and the other kid is t- nobody well, says anything about. But the, it. the thing is, it's that's more of what the media will do. I don't blame the kid. He's not going no, around no, no, calling no, no. himself uh, a hero. Believe me, don't don't yeah. get me wrong. I yeah. say prayers for that kid. Yeah. I say prayers for both of them. Sure. Don't get me wrong. So I think you're right, though. But but that goes to the point about how you ca- how you categorize what a hero is, and I don't feel sorry for any professional athlete's plight. Now there are certain circumstances, death in the family, some tragic accident that happens. You know, you you have sympathy for them because you know that it's tough. However. However, if most of these young men, for the most part, because it's mostly male sports that mm-hmm. where, where the money is, mm-hmm. they get to, before they're 28, earn more in that period between college and 28. And if they're in the NBA, they, you know, they can go right in. They make more than the average American will come within a state of. I'm talking about distance. And they don't appreciate it. Now, I'm not saying they don't work hard. Military veterans, police officer, police officers, firemen. EMT. They, they ain't getting rich doing what nope, they do. No, they're not. They don't. And I think perspective-wise, that's why I'm so committed to helping and, and supporting it because I think we've lost that along the way. But we're going to work our way to that. I want to go right. back to your timeline here. So you join the Marine Corps and you, you are in at what point – Tell, tell us about the first couple of years, what you did once you I, got out of basic. I, I, uh, I joined the Marine Corps. I enlisted. So I went to boot camp in San Diego mm-hmm. and private Cuvion. Um, I got out, went to school. I was a clerk. I was a Remington Raider, they call right. it. So I did Remington typewriter. Yeah, so that's yeah. what I did. I, I did yep. a typewriter. And uh, I actually applied to go to the Naval Academy prep school. So I wanted to go to I wanted to get my college education. Sure. Uh, and I wanted to go to the Naval Academy, and the Naval Academy prep school was the venue for that. Sure. Uh, for for enlisted guy at the time, I kind of got jacked around by this major and the thing, and I, I said to hell with it. I, I I got out. I took my uh, my enlistment. I finished it up, and I came home and I came to LSU. Okay. I enrolled in LSU, um, taking care of my brother and my sister at the time uh, in Port Allen, mm-hmm. and uh, I missed the, being a Marine. I missed the Marine Corps. Um, I just missed that camaraderie. So yeah. I joined uh, uh, I joined the reserve program here in, in Louisiana, okay. in Baton Rouge. They had a wep- uh, weapons company at the time, was located at the airport. And uh, uh, I was a sergeant. I was promoted to staff sergeant. And then I decided I wanted to be an officer. I, I thought that uh, I, I kind of got tired. Uh, I mentioned this to the kids the other night. I, I got tired of... Um, you know, get on the bus, get off the bus, hurry up and wait, doing this thing. And I thought, you know, officers were stupid. They couldn't get their act together, couldn't get the plan together. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to change this. I'm going to be the thing. Uh, I literally went a, a completely different direction than almost anybody else in the Marine Corps. How so? Um, I, I remember, I was a clerk, so sure. I was familiar with all the rules, regulations, yeah. and, and policies. Yeah. And I was going through a thing, and I kept trying to be a, uh, I wanted to be a warrant officer to start off with thinking that uh, I could be what was called an infantry warrant officer. Well, at the time, there were no infantry warrant officers. They called them gunners. Okay. There were no infantry warrant officers in the Marine Corps at the time. But one of the tenets I learned in the Marine Corps is anything can be waived. So I decided 
I was going to put my application in for a warrant officer, and I'm going to put infantry warrant, infantry officer on that and be an infantry officer. Okay. Well, I, I literally applied three years in a row saying that. And, of course, I got rejected every time. It right. Got rejected. So I'm going for the next time, and I'm folding through the order. And I went too far, flipping pages, and I saw this thing called Enlisted Commissioning Program. And you had to have a college degree. You had to have a general technical score of uh, 20. Uh, you had to have a board of officers, seven at least seven officers, interview you and recommend you. You had to uh, go through your chain of command, and they had to recommend you all the time. Well, I already had my degree. I put together a board of officers. I called officers, and they put them together, and I asked them to write a recommendation for me. And we did this. And I put my application together, and I sent it up to um, battalion initially, and I got a call and said, uh, you can't do that, that you know, that doesn't work. In the Marine Corps, an officer either goes through the RTC program, goes to the uh, Naval Academy, mm-hmm. or uh, or there's something called a PLC program, which is you're a college student and you go through a different route. Right. Not RTC, but it's called uh, platoon leaders class. Um, so I, I sent my th- and I got the battalion call, adjutant called me back. Says you can't do that. There's no such thing. I said yes. Go to Marine Corps to P1060, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever. And he goes, oh. So the battalion commander calls me. Says come come down to the headquarters and let me interview you. So I did, and he interviewed me, and he said, okay. So he sent, he sent the package on to regiment, and, uh, you know, same thing happens. I think the ex- executive officer calls me, and he says, hey, there's no such thing. You can't do this. I said, yes, sir, look at such and such, such and such. And he's going, oh, so the regimental officer who was in San Francisco, yeah. he called me, and we did a phone interview. And he said, well, fine. So then they sent it off to division, which is the next higher level. I get the same call. You can't, can't do, do this. this. <laughs> I said, yes, I can. Look at this. Now, this, is, this isn't like bang, bang, bang. This is over a space of mm-hmm. several months mm-hmm. now. So um, it, it, I, uh, the, the, reg, the division general, commanding general, was in New Orleans. So I went down to New Orleans and interviewed with him. And yeah. He goes, okay. So he passes it up to headquarters Marine Corps. Um, this time a little longer lag passed by about a month or a month and a half or so, and I get a call from a colonel, and he says, you can't do this. There's no such thing. I said, yes, sir, go look at Marine Corps Order P-1060 Umpty Frat. And he says, no, you don't understand. Right. This order was done in the Korean War to um, look for officers because they needed officers quickly. And one of the things in the Marine Corps is every order that's issued has a self-cancellation date in the oh. order. And I said, sir, look to the last, because it's always in the last paragraph. I said, look to the last paragraph. There is no cancellation date on this order. <laughs> and he goes, holy shit, you're right. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> he says, I'll get back with you. <laughs> so about a week goes by, and I get, um, I get another phone call. And it's, it's another colonel. He says, uh, he says uh, Staff Sergeant, this is Colonel so-and-so. And I got this package on the commandant's desk, and he wants to know what the hell this is. So I literally go through the same story I'm just giving you. And he says, that's a hell of a story there, Staff Sergeant. He says, hold on a minute. And you hear, this is, you know, this was a time when your regular phone lines, and he dropped the phone on the desk. And I waited for about four or five minutes, and he come back. He says, the commandant said 
if he's got balls to apply for it, I've got balls to sign it. And he signed it, and I became a second lieutenant. So how that's how I became that? Didn't do any of the other things. And, 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 and oh, that program, we ended up, I ended up having several other friends of mine going through that same program until they finally put a cancellation on it, and it, they changed the program since then. But, it's, mean, but yeah. it's kind of unique in the Marine Corps. Well, it is unique, but it goes to show you the value of having balls and being able to say, I, I'm worth the investment and the hard work, which is which is kind of lost. So now you're a second lieutenant. You are now an officer, well, sir. Well, yeah, I was a staff sergeant yeah. and had some level of respect. Yeah. Then I became a second lieutenant and instant nobody. <laughs> instant nobody. Because <laughs> you got to start all over yeah, again. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, you, well, you I mean you, you ended up climbing the ladder and, and becoming a full bird colonel yeah. uh, along the way. Yeah, not bad for a kid from back <laughs> not, really, Louisiana. Not, yeah. not bad from a west sider there. <laughs> no, huh? there you go. So, so here's a couple of questions about that. Through that process, for people listening, because I think people can be inspired by that tenacity, because I think I am a fan of and an, and an encourager of tenacity, because I tell people, you know, Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Clay Young said that that's also the definition of persistence. Yeah. <laughs> and the only difference is what your intention is. And so if you do something and never succeed at it, people call you crazy. If you do something that nobody's ever done and you're successful at it, you're called a pioneer. So when you, when you look at that period for yourself, what would you say was the best motivator to keep you going and not be discouraged? And how would you encourage other people in their own walks of life to do that? You know, to, 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 to feed in on that, you know, my expectation when I became an, an officer was simply to be the commanding officer of Weapons Company, 3rd Battalion, 23rd Marines, located mm-hmm. here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. As a captain, okay. as a captain's level um, position, that's all, that's all I wanted to be. To me, that, that was my success. Yeah. Um, I reported in, uh, so I was, I was in Weapons Company for a while, and then I went up to, down to Battalion in New Orleans to be uh, a staff officer, and I was still a second, uh, first lieutenant by this time. And I reported in to... Uh, the battalion commander, whose name was uh, Colonel Rutt Whittington. He, he ended up being the commander of the state police mm-hmm. here. Uh, and, and Colonel Whittington, I'm, I'm interviewing, and he, he does the same thing. He says, so what do you want to be? And he, he says, sir, I'm, you know, I'll make captain, and I'll be commanding officer of weapons company. And, I, and you know, that's, that's how he goes. He goes, no. He says, you're going to command this battalion one day. And I went, Huh? It was somebody who had confidence in me <laughs> and that and and where my own insecurities. Yeah, he's, he, he goes, no, you're, you're an idiot. You're going to do better than, oh, than, yeah. than this. And um, throughout the years, I went. We a lot of weekends, a lot of uh, extra duties, a lot of tr- training and all the thing. And by the way, my family suffered for this. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my wife, God bless her, was uh, a great support. You know, she took care of the kids while I was gone. She held the home front. When we went to Desert Storm, she took care of all of the other families yeah. that were gone. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a tremendously strong woman, and I'm very appreciative of her. Um, but other people saw me. Or saw something in me, and and really, and one of the greatest compliments I got was from one of my really good friends, a uh, Marine comrade, and uh, I, I was a battalion commander at the time. And this guy was actually my executive officer, and and I and I, and I actually one time said, "You think I'm doing okay? Am I? Am you know? Am, am, are we moving in the right direction?" And he goes, "He goes, cool. 
He says, more people respect you and what you've done and how you operate than my hero, Colonel Whittington. And he, because he knew him when he says, he says, people look to you. So when, when we hold a meeting or something, even before you became battalion commander, you, you walked into a room, no matter who else was in that room, they looked for your advice of what you were doing. I, I was totally oblivious. <laughs> I was just doing my job as far as I was concerned. Hmm. Um, but it, it was that kind of thing, comrades who really supported you, who, who felt that, that, that you had something valuable to say that you knew what you were doing. Yeah. Sometimes I didn't think I knew what I was doing, sure. but I carried it off. And, uh, so what do you attribute that though? Um, because I, I, I can understand where you're coming from and you're, you're trying your best to do a good job. You're not thinking a whole lot about accolades and then you have somebody you want to just be you sure know, that it's going right. Accolade, yeah. Accolades. I, you know, I didn't go through puberty until I was 18 years old. So I'm in boot camp, just barely going through puberty, you know. So I, when I was a, I, I said I wanted to be a Marine from eight, but when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Yeah. My dad was a high school coach. My grandfather was superintendent of education in West Baton Rouge yeah. Parish, you know, family of educators. Mm-hmm. So th- there was always that striving to um, better yourself or to be something and to always do the job the best that you could do it not sure. to not to be lazy about sure, it not sure. to do something and it just came natural to me because that's the example that i had right um and it i, I recognized early on i wasn't going to be a professional baseball player because <laughs> yeah <laughs> not only couldn't i couldn't hit the curve i couldn't hit the fastball <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't hit the change up <laughs> right uh, um, and I couldn't reach home plate from outfield. So, you know, I was all kind of strikes. Yes. But, but I, I took pride in what I did anyway. And I always was, it was always easy for me to make friends with people because okay. I always thought I was a real small guy. Uh, I, I learned to avoid fights cause I got beat up a lot. <laughs> um, the thing, and then, you know, the boy scouts were another avenue that I learned to be a leader and that, that. I had something to contribute, even if I couldn't physically or athletically perform, I could do something different. I could provide guidance. I could provide help. I could provide leadership uh, in doing things. I may not be the best at something, but I knew enough to let the people who do the best do their job and right. for me to get the hell out of the way. Right. And that's that's an that's an important life life uh, lesson. But I, you know, I, I, it is an important life lesson. But as you are going along, there's something to be said. I read this thing the other day that talked about the difference between those who want to be in charge and those who want to stand in leadership. And there is a vast difference between yeah. those two things. Yeah. Talk about that for a moment. Uh, uh, being in charge is is one thing, and and you can be a leader and be in charge sure. at the same at the sure. same time. But being in charge because you want to lord over people mm-hmm. is a wholly different thing. It's and a bad most, problem now. It is a bad problem because people don't respond to that. They don't respect it. They may do the work, but it's based upon fear, and, intimidation, and, 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 or their and, circumstances. Uh, exactly. But and, I think, don't you think it's better? to inspire people to move than to be behind them just shoving them out of fear you know it, you know there there are, there are occasions where you do have to kick somebody in the ass no there's that's true and and i think that it's but that's the part of leadership that says you because here's the other thing but it's not the only way it, to do it's it it's not the yeah. only way to do it and but but that's also something people will avoid 
is not wanting to have the oh. confrontation. Oh, I, I am I am one of the most non-confrontational guys you will ever meet. I am not like now, <laughs> that's you, a load I, of I, crap. I, <laughs> no, nah. I, I I look from 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 being a little kid and getting beat up on the playground. Yeah. you know, I learned to be non-confrontational. Okay. I learned to avoid <laughs> yeah. those fights, and I you know I I get. But I also learned that sometimes you got to stand your ground That's and right. you got to stick up Absolutely. and you got to do the you got to do the thing whether you like it or not. I mean, I've had to fire people before sure. and then you know did all that and then turn around, went to the bathroom and threw up because I'm never physically fun. ill. Never fun. Because uh, I, I knew that somebody, but I never fired somebody that didn't fire themselves first. You know, and that's there really, was always a reason. That's always the way. It's like people, you don't have to intimidate people. They will give you a reason to promote them or remove them Absolutely. with their own actions. Absolutely. So you're moving through now. Let's talk about getting to become battalion commander and the road to there. Did you achieve that? And if so, what was it like when you got I, there? I, um, well, I, I was a staff officer for a long time. And then I became the executive officer for the battalion. And then uh, battalion commander in the Marine Corps is a... Uh, an application process mm-hmm. and a board meets a national board meets and selects selects uh, qualified officers to be commanders and then they they assign you to the command you don't get to posi- commi- uh, pick the command that you want to be sure I made my application to be a battalion commander or, or to be a battalion commander and um, the board selected me and assigned me to third battalion 23rd Marines which is the battalion that I had been serving in for right. years right. between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Sure. Um, and I, I was just stunned. I just knew I was going to have to go somewhere with all new people wow. and everything. But I already had a core of people that I trusted sure. and I knew, and we worked sure. together. We were a team already. So I became a battalion commander in August of 2001. And in September 2001, a seminal event occurred. Yep. And I knew Tuesday, September 11th. Yes. I knew when I saw that second airplane fly into the building that we were going to war and my life as a Marine, that we were going to war. Oh no. I said, no, we were going to not that we're just under attack. We're going to war. We're going to war. And I knew my job as a Marine changed tremendously. No longer was I preparing and training people on things. I had a, this was, this was going to be real thing. Remember I'd already gone through desert storm. Right. Um, and, and which I was to, roughly 10 no, years or so. Yeah. 1990. Uh, yeah. 1990, 1991. No, yeah. So 10 years yeah. earlier. Uh, and so we were I, that evening, I started getting on the phone to my company commanders and my staff saying, okay, here's what we got to do. We have these things that we need to accomplish. We're going to be going to this. Mm-hmm. I had uh, my inspector instructor, which is an active duty Marine, full-time Marine. Of course, I was a reservist, um, uh, Craig Timberlake, and Craig is now a major general in the Marine Corps. Um, and he and I discussed what we needed to do and how we needed to get forward with this equipment, logistics, people, training, gaps that we needed, what we what we had to have and what we didn't have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started doing this. Now, we initially expected Afghanistan. Yeah. And we were preparing for that. Matter of fact, we right. were on the list. But if you remember, right, Afghanistan ended pretty quickly, the pretty initial quickly. part anyway. Right. And so we, we were actually stood down. Well, then uh, Iraq picked up, and uh, we started formulating our, our plans for that. 
Um, well, I don't want to jump ahead because I want to spend a, a, some time on Iraq. Let's yeah. let's go back okay. to that morning in September of 2001. Um, I remembered being on the air doing a morning show and there was a TV monitor with news above my head. And so it's not like it wasn't like now where cell phones would have been going off with alerts and and all of that. So. I glance at the news every now and again, and I happen to not notice the beginning of this after the first plane had gone into the first tower. And there was a guy who hosted a morning show on what's now, it's a different format, but it was a country station at the time, and he was a retired military veteran. And the door into my studio was open. Because, you know, it's morning, it's pretty quiet. Generally, it would be closed after a certain time when salespeople start getting there. And he said, we're under attack, guys. When the first plane, you know, we all saw that first plane goes in. That's the first thing he says. So now, being a civilian, not having the programming of a military person, you don't process it the same way. That's why I went back to make sure to put emphasis on the fact that you said we're going to war for most of us. We're just wondering what the hell is going on because as much as we knew, know about Al Qaeda now back then it was a passing subject matter in the news, even though we had been in a conflict with Osama bin Laden and all of them. So uh, this happens and now you're enthralled with what's going on. Uh, real quick, sure. so you don't feel too too left out. I, I'm at work, and my secretary walks into the office and says, "A plane flew into the into the World Trade Center, one of the World Trade Center buildings in New York." And I said, "Man, some air traffic controller really fucked this." Right, up. that's exactly right. Well, the first one, <laughs> and, but that's what you're all thinking because you see that and you think, "Ah, oh, it's and man, she goes, somebody's not she paying goes, attention." No, she and she walked out and she came it's back. Commercial plane. She, yeah, she goes no, and she about two minutes later she walked back and she said, "You need to come see this now." And oh, I wow. walked out. I walked out of my office, and she had a TV on her desk. And my first thing I go, "What the hell did she get a TV at the office? What the <laughs> hell is she doing with a TV?" And uh, I, I and and it was on. And I immediately I walked behind her chair, and that's when the second plane walked. Yeah. Fit, you know, it happened. It, it happened and, on live yes, air. Yes, I know. I mean, I saw it right there, and I and that's when I told her. I said, "Oh crap, we're going to war." Well, the 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 second plane hits. And now you get that this is on purpose. And I remember, I forget the network I was watching, because you were flipping around, because at the time, CNN and Fox weren't as much of a big deal. In fact, well, CNN was the only well, avenue I was gonna for say, national. Yeah, yeah I was going to say CNN was the, the big deal. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of those guys who were at CNN then are no longer even with us. Yeah. Bernard Shaw, all of them. Yeah. But, but you could remember hearing people say, because Bill Hemmer was at CNN at that time, and he's one of the reporters, like people saying, this is on purpose. So you're hearing the comments, the president's in Florida reading. uh, And, you know, I I have done an interview with Andy Card since then. Mm, I interviewed him after. I also interviewed on radio the guy who ran the flight school with with the the hijackers. Yeah, Muhammad Atta. And and at some point we'll have to tell talk about that story, you and I offline. But uh, just watching this and there is this feeling of numbness because this is the Kennedy assassination. This is this is something that not only it happened, but it happened in a way 
where the public was paying attention oh, yeah. to it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kennedy Very gets assa- visible. Absolutely. Kennedy gets assassinated, and there is a, br- of course, the footage from Zapruder wasn't until, you know, uh, hours later, actually, the network got it, and, but you knew within minutes of him being shot that it had happened. 9-11 happens in front of our eyes. So now you're wondering what's going to go on. And you don't know the president's in the air. He's leaving Florida. He comes to Barksdale uh, and Shreveport. He, he gives comments and he's up, back up in the air before we see them. And you're hearing, like, what the hell's going on? So now, my que- the que- I, don't think, I don't think I've ever asked you this question in all the time that we've known each other, which has you know, been about 12 years. Was there ever a moment where you were afraid about the possibility of what this could become? Afraid, no. Um, curious and concerned, yeah. But I, I, you know, I've already been to war once. Um, I knew the team I had in place. I, I, you know, it, it's, it, it's funny. People say, well, you want to go to war? I said, no, I don't want to go to war, but... I know my capabilities and I know my team's capabilities sure. and I know what we have to do. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of arrogant too. I, uh, or egotistical, you probably should say, because I was, um, I, I was uh, bringing the garbage out to the street. This was sometime shortly after 2011, uh, um, 9-11. And I, I, I always look up in the sky and focus on Orion. Um, the constellation yeah. Orion, uh, because I, I, I found that particularly when I was training somewhere around the United States or around the world, or even when I was in Desert Storm, I know I could find Orion, and I could just think that I was standing in my backyard or on my front yard and, and looking at it. And I could I could t- teleport myself back to that spot. So mm-hmm. it's always been a focal point for me. And I, I'm, I'm walking back from the street one night, and I I looked up at Orion, and and God talked to me. And he says, you're right where I want you to be. And, you know, dumbass Cuvion thinks, all right, here's, you know, battalion commander. I'm taking my Marines across the beach, you know, taking the hill, taking the village, you know, flags flying in glory and all the other stuff that, that you know, uh, heroism, however you, want to, however you want to talk about it. Of course, I was not so naive about flags flying in the glory of war. I've seen the ugly part of it. Um, but it, it was that egotistical type thought that yeah. I, I thought of. And uh, when we get into uh, Iraq, let's revert back to this, because I'll tell you, uh, there's a follow on to that, to that, <laughs> to that thought after God talking to me there. Uh, you know, I will. <laughs> we will do it. Trust me. You, you, you've said a couple things here. In fact, I want to, I want to ask this question and I don't know, I'm sure you've explained it before, but in all of our conversations about historical figures and all kinds of things, we've never talked about this specifically for the average person. And that would be, uh, that's not a cliche. I'm more average than you can ever no, 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 think, no, no. man. Wait, 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 wait. As I say around yeah. the office here, let me get to the period. Okay. <laughs> so, so for the average person who could never understand this, describe war. I'm talking not, not, not Hollywood, not TV. That's, see, here you got, I told you I'd never asked you that. For, for the average person who doesn't know, what it looks like, smells like, the, the hairs standing up on the back of your neck, the, the, what it's like. Talk about it as best you can. You know, I, I don't know that I'm, I mean, I have the experience, but I don't know that I'm, I'm qualified to express 
in words that that uh, it, it, you know I, I can tell you one of the greatest things is you're always waiting you're waiting for something to happen you you move there you're waiting you're waiting to attack you're waiting for the enemy to attack you're waiting for you know some somebody to fall off the truck you're waiting for the food to arrive you're waiting for water you're waiting for something i mean one of the things about war is you're always waiting there's a lot of inactivity there's a lot of boredom on a thing the problem with that boredom is it's mixed with fear because you have absolutely no clue what's going to happen you know um the enemy always has a say in what's going on you can have the greatest plan in the world and all of the best equipment and all of the you know all of the training in the world um that doesn't mean you're just going to roll right over them the enemy has a say in 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 what goes on um, it, but when it happens, I, I'll, I'll tell you in desert storm, when we went through desert storm, we came back and we started discussing among ourselves and, you know, and it, we said, you know, training was harder than the war hmm. because we trained our asses off right. and we busted our butts, um, and, and it got to be like a rote thing. You knew what you were doing. You went, you went and you did it, and you're thinking. Now, it's interspersed with fear and deprivations and, sure. and uncomfortableness and, and uncertainty and all kinds of other things that's going on. Uh, in Iraq, it was kind of the same way. You went and you did something. It, we had a little bit of a different thing because we had ended up doing something we totally weren't trained for. Right, right. I mean, just a 180. Sure, sure. Uh, so, so that was, like, pretty unnerving, but you had to, you know, Figure it out. You're a Marine. Figure but engaging it out. that in, in the era of, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. That's that's my own ignorance speaking, so please correct me. The, the IED, because we learned in, in, in the, the first the, five know, years I, of 2000, of the of the new millennium, the, the American population learned a lot about IEDs. And IEDs are not a new phenomenon. Uh, sure they're, they're not. There have they're been booby traps right. in mines. Even, even, well, that's what we called them before, booby even traps. Booby traps <laughs> yeah. in mines. And even yeah. in, even in uh, you can think about uh, uh, Hannibal and the Roman yeah. legions fighting yeah. together. They yeah. had a thing called caltrops. Right. And it was just a little thing that they, they threw out in front of it that you stepped on and put a hole in your foot. I mean, there's it's always been something like that. Sure. It's just that now... With the uh, guerrilla warfare or uh, third world warfare, or third generation warfare that we, we start to call it, and moving into fourth generation now with electronic, mm-hmm. being part of that, um, it's more pervasive because it's, it's cheap, it's simple, and it's effective. And it's, and it's frightening because it's one of those things that you, you, it's hard to prepare for. It's hard to look out for. Now, we end up, and everything that you do, the enemy does something, and you figure out a way to counter it, then the enemy figures out a way to counter that, then you figure out a way to counter that. Mm-hmm. It's a never-ending game. It continues and continues. So there's never any spot where you can say, I'm safe. I, we, can, we can overcome this. They're not going to hurt us anymore. That's never going to happen. Did you ever second-guess the, the decision to go into Iraq? We know that from Afghanistan, bin Laden was launching a lot of his misery on other places, but the president laid out, President Bush at the time laid out what he called the axis of evil. Mm-hmm. And he named a series of nations that had been either sponsors of terror or who, who were terrorists by the very nature of mm-hmm. what their leaders were doing. And he talked about, you know, North Korea, Iraq, Iran. He talked about Syria, Afghanistan. I mean, he listed all of these places and this was supposed to be a part of some tactical 
plan to deal with these places. So we deal, we do what we do in Afghanistan and then Iraq is next. And they make the case about how Saddam was being non-compliant with the UN sanctions, how uh, he had weapons of mass destruction. We know that because of the previous dealings we had with him in the eighties and how he had gassed the Kurds after then. So we know he had him because he used him. But did you second guess the decision to go beyond Afghanistan to Iraq? There at the time, um, you mentioned westwards of mass destruction, which mm-hmm. everybody hinges on now. And yeah, they point sure. that that was one point oh, out sure. of seventeen oh, yeah. Yeah. that President Bush brought before Congress. Right. And all seventeen of those points were verified by U.S. intelligence agencies, sure. Israeli intelligence agencies, right. Italian intelligence agencies, mm-hmm. Soviet, uh, Russian intelligence agencies. Egyptian intelligence agencies, yeah. France, France, <clears throat> for God's sakes, verified France. it, verified those. Jacques England, Chirac. everything. So it was not, it was not just, you know, President yeah. Bush off the top of his head saying, oh, we're going after Iraq because, you know, Saddam dissed my daddy. Right. No, nah, that wasn't it. That, right. that wasn't the case. And everybody that says, oh, we knew and we did it only for the oil or whatever, they have absolutely no clue what they're talking about. They don't <laughs> understand. Certainly not helping when, us now. When the Marines and the Army crossed the line of departure to attack into Iraq, they went in with MOP-3, uh, Military Operational Protective Program. And this is wearing, you're wearing chemical suits, and, and you have your gas mask on. You think, you don't do that in 120-degree heat and right. with, with the thing. You really expect a threat. Sure. You don't do that. Right. You're just going willy-nilly on the thing. Uh, and then once we went in, and despite everything everybody says, um, I'm here to tell you, once the war was over or the initial combat because was over, that was about three weeks we actually right. did win the war in iraq yes in yes. about three weeks what has happened since and, then it was is, different yeah but that, that, the iraqi people while they had some trepidation because after desert storm they were encouraged particularly southern iraq the, the shiites um, were encouraged to rise up against Saddam, yeah. and we didn't support them, and Saddam slapped them down. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, I uncovered you know, many mass graves uh, for this type of thing. He Heard was a the butcher. And talk, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And his sons were yeah. even Ude worse. and Kuse, yeah. And um, it, 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 the, the Iraqi people were joyous that Saddam was gone. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Uh, I told it's not you this. the story the media has told. No, it's not the story the media told. And I, I've told you this before. Then why is the that? Two, the, I, I don't know. Because it doesn't fit their idea of what, it, what goes on. Um, uh, the two most asked questions I got from the general Iraqi people were, okay. can you get me a picture of President Bush, and can you, can I have an, can you get me an American flag? Wow. That's the two most asked questions I got. So if, if I put all of the questions I got and being the, the governor and I had a lot of other right. things going on and those things, but general run of the mill, when I was walking the streets, I would generally get that question well, several times. You know, it's funny. It, I, I would imagine a similar reaction to people in Zimbabwe if you had gotten rid of Robert Mugabe. Yeah, <laughs> they know, were, they were have, appreciative yeah, yeah, of this. And, yeah. and they had hope. And, you know, the next thing was, okay, when do I get to vote? Well, yeah. you know, hey, you know, democracy is a little bit, you know, voting is part of it, but you don't, you, you got to build up to that. There's, yeah. there's some other things that have to occur for that. And, I think we and, rushed that pro- that part of the process. No, we didn't rush it, and I think okay. we did we did the wrong job. We, we were wrong on that. Um, in my opinion, democracy is from the ground up. Yeah. 
Uh, you can't franchise you do, it. No, you do. You do your community, your town, your city, or whatever. Sure. Then you do your district or your sure. your parish or uh, county, however you want to do it. Mm-hmm. The thing, and then you work up to things. So you build those relationships down at the bottom, and then you move up. Well, we went in, and first it was Orha, and then Ambassador Bremer, and they then all of a sudden it became Baghdad centric. Yeah. Send everything to Baghdad, and you don't do anything until Baghdad tells you to. I got the Iraqis turning to me and goes. What's the difference? That's what Saddam did. We sent everything to Baghdad, right. and you didn't do anything unless right. Baghdad told you to. And it was such a different place with the the heavy Sunni South. Uh, it was the Shia South, the, and Shia the Sunni South, Northeast, Sunni Northeast, Northwest, and then and of course, and the the and Kurds the Kurd. were in the middle there. My province, yeah. my province had about eighty uh, percent Shia, about fifteen percent, um, uh, yeah, maybe twelve percent. Sunni, and then uh, another uh, 8%, 8% Kurd, and yeah. the rest were Christians or Druze or something else. Well, Wasit has, I, I checked on it this morning before we sat to do this to see what the current population is, but Wasit's got a, pro- a population of nearly a million and a half people. Is that is that comparable to where it was then, or is it larger it, it or was, smaller it's, now? It's smaller now. Than it's it. smaller it was, now. Yeah, it was, a, it was about, about a million eight. Tell us the story of how you ended up becoming the governor of oh, the Wasit this was, province. Oh, this is great. Uh, okay, so we're prepared. We're we're attached to Task Force Tarawa, and um, um, my battalion. We flew into Kuwait, and we got into our our base camp, and we set up. And I had uh, we set a plan to send all of our rolling stock, our vehicles, into marry up with uh, Task Force Tarawa. We're going to reinforce that that organization. And then we, we uh, Task Force Tarawa had at t- time captured the airfield at Al Kut. And we were going to fly the the Marines in to marry up with our equipment mm-hmm. by C-130. So I get on the first flight uh, in a C-130, and we land at the airfield in Al-Kut. And uh, I get off the plane, and I go looking for the commanding general, Brigadier General Natonsky. This guy is a, a, a great Marine, tall tall guy. He's about six foot eight, rail thin, got a nose that's bigger than mine, so you know it's huge. <laughs> and uh, and he looks, he, you know, so sirs. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Cuvion. I've got 900 Marines and sailors here. We're ready to kick ass, take names. What do you want us to do? Where you, where, what's your plans for us? Where are you going? And he looked down at me and says, uh, I'm glad you're here, Cuvion. And in my mind, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> something's wrong. Because he pronounced my name right the first time. So he's, <laughs> he's done his research. Yeah, yeah he, he knew who I was. <laughs> and I said, he says, I'm glad you're here, Cuvion. You're the governor. I said, Sir? He says, you're the governor. I said, okay, sir, what does that mean? He says, anything that happens in this province, you're responsible for. I said, okay, (laughs) what does that mean, sir? He says, anything that happens in this province, you're you're responsible responsible for. for. Now, you have to understand, as a Marine, you normally get a set of orders. And there's there's an intent, and there's a direction, and they have specific line-out things that they want to, to give. And then there's an end state, what you want to have happen. Right. That wasn't, my orders were... Anything that happens in this province, you're responsible for. I said, okay, sir, I got that. What does that mean? He goes, anything that happens in this province, you you're responsible for. I'm it. And I went, yeah. okay. Uh, now, at the time, the Republican Guard was still moving around. There was ammunition ordinance everywhere. Um, regular Iraqi units were still in play. Uh, you know, The fighting was still going on. Uh, we were going to do a relief in place with Task Force Tower. Task Force Tower had... About uh, 
2,600 Marine sailors and yeah. soldiers in it, and I had my 930-some-odd Marines and sailors. They reinforced me with an Army MP company, which okay. was about another 200. Uh, and I'll t- talk to you about the Army <laughs> MP commander here in a second. And uh, so I'm taking over a province about the size of Connecticut with 1.8 million people. Yeah. We've also got a 200-kilometer border with Iran. Iran, that's right. My yeah. province runs all the way up to the to the yeah. outskirts of yeah. Baghdad, to the yeah. suburbs of Baghdad. And you are the, in it. Afraid. And, uh, you know, out the the uh, Tigris River goes through it, al Kut. Which was a fam- which was a World War One battleground. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the middle of a river. It was a capital city. It was known as the the Las Vegas of Iraq at the time. So it was the most dangerous place in Iraq when we got there uh, for for uh, anti-American activity and and what was going on. And I'm. How long did it take you to get your head around the fact Man, that I'm, you're in I, charge my, of this? I'm, I'm looking at the map. I'm looking at what I've got to do. I'm looking at who we're doing it with. I, 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 I gathered my staff and, and my commanding officers together and I said, look, here's what, you know, we're responsible for this. What's going on? So we got, we got a data dump from Task Force Tower and, uh, and the units that were already in there. And again, they had 2,600 people scattered around. And I got my little you know, 1,100, 1,200, 1,200 folks trying to figure it out. Um, and but one of the great things about a reserve unit is I had lawyers, I had policemen, mm-hmm. I had electricians, I right. had plumbers, I right. had civil engineers. Sure. I had people who had expertise beyond being a Marine. Yeah. So we started looking at, you know, so I, we set a priority. We needed security first. Then we needed to um, make sure that the civilian population was watered and fed, that they had in, in medical services. Then we, then we could start building uh, a political ba- base and background. There was literally no Iraqi government services left in place. Everybody's beat feet. They were gone. The fire department in Al-Qut stayed in place, and they continued to act. They were also their ordnance disposal unit. And I watched these guys, firemen, barefoot and dejalas, which is a, just a cotton robe, mm-hmm. fighting fires, running into buildings barefoot and doing this thing. And T- attempting to, to defuse bombs with a, with a pair of needle-nose pliers and a Phillips screwdriver. These guys were, I mean, talk about balls. Yeah. These guys had balls. <laughs> yeah. these are, and these were Arabs. These right. were Iraqis. Right. They're not, you know, you, most America thinks that Iraqis or the Middle East are just a, a bunch of third world people who have no education or thing. Iraq had oh, a pretty good middle, middle class. They got universities. Yeah. They had hospitals. They yeah. had doctors. Yeah. They have phys- uh, physicists. I mean, lots of, sure. lots of qualified, sure. brilliant people. One of the things Saddam Hussein did, though, was he killed the innovation, the initiative out of these people. If, if you oppose Saddam Hussein, you ended up in a hole in the desert somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and so they had no... He proliferated well, ignorance and fear. It, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So these yeah. people were scared. They were scared of us. They were yeah. scared of themselves. They were scared of the people turning on them. Mm-hmm. You know, Saddam Hussein rewarded yeah. people who turned other people in. I mean, it was, it, it was a scary and time. And he beat the hell out of it. Those, those he didn't kill or maim, they beat the hell out of them. And it, the, 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 there are movies and pictures that are oh, available yeah. that you can go oh, see. Oh, yeah, and, you can see. I mean, I, it's I, brutal. I alluded to earlier, we uncovered a number of mass graves in the area. And there, I'm sure there are still mass graves out there that people don't know about. Hell, the Olympic team. I mean, they beat the hell out of all those guys. It, it, it's just it, 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 unbelievable. But the, but the Iraqi people are pretty resilient. Yeah. Um, even though they, they 
they were timid, mm-hmm. they still had hope. And I stay in contact with a number of them now, and they still have hope. And despite all of the stuff that's going yeah. on since then, they yeah. still have some kind of hope that they can have a better life. Well, there's a possibility of something kids. better now. It's possible, and, yeah. and there is possible, and they're yeah. starting to work on it. And I see democracy a little bit working over over there. Yeah. The, the government that's been elected uh, a couple of times has been gravitated toward Iran, but I think the people are starting to elect other people to be independent. One of the things I found out about Iraqi is a, is a made-up country. And it was made up after World War One by mm-hmm. the, the the British, and they, they just conglomerated a bunch of people together and stuck a king in, in there and and did that. But the Iraqis were proud of their country. They were proud of being an Iraqi, and they had an Iraq. They had a national flag. And when we got there, one of the things that Ambassador Bremer did was try to change the flag. And the Iraqi people, no, that's right. not our flag. This is our flag. This right. is this is what the Iraqi flag. They had a pride, and they also knew their history. They knew the history of that area um, from time immemorial. Mm-hmm. And I actually use that to my advantage because I talked to, to the Iraqi people when I started building leadership in and, and trying to create the government bodies, uh, both in the, in the towns, the cities, and the province. I explained to them. They said, no, oh, were you coming? Because they did the same thing that our media was saying. Oh, are you coming here to steal our Are you coming here to? I said, look, we're not coming here to do that. We're not raping your women. Right. We're not stealing your kids for slaves. We're not salting your fields. We're not damming up your rivers. We're not killing you outright. We're, I instituted uh, um, uh, the Constitution in 1928 to reinstitute a set of laws. The Constitution in 1920 in Iraq was the last um, elected constitution, elected, democratically elected constitution in, in the, so I, I put that back to, to build the the uh, the law the system of law, in in the in the in the province. Um, so they they began to respect that and they began to to try to be part of it. Did I have naysayers? Oh hell yeah, there were plenty. Well, there's, of them. there's still. Well, I, I, I mean, ask- people came up to me. Like I said, people came up to me asked for a flag or a picture of president. People also came up to me. That guy's a terrorist. You need to shoot him right now. I mean, they, they literally. Word for word, wow. that guy, point him out, shoot him. And I said, no, we don't do that anymore. That's not how we do that. Right. If he breaks the law, we're going to put him through. I, I, I put in a, a policy in place that if an Iraqi broke an Iraqi law, mm-hmm. we went through the Iraqi judicial system sure. that we sent up. And I had, a, I had a young man with me, Sean Dunn, who was a, ju- who was a, 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 a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I put him to reinvent the judicial system for that thing. And we went through the Iraqi um, judicial system. If they did something against one of my Marines, sailors, or soldiers, I put them through my military, through my military yeah. system. You know, one of the things people don't realize in, in Iraq, if you got put in jail prior to the United States getting there, your family was responsible to feed and water you. The Iraqi government didn't feed you. Wow. And water you. The thing I, I I mean, it took about a week before someone finally put it out to maybe me. That's so I, what, maybe so that's started, what we need to do over here. Well, I started, you know, I started the thing. I got got him two meals a day, and, and oh, thing. I mean, that's all I had. We were taking it out of our stocks for feeding my Marines by, to do that. By the way, do you think because of all of the criticism of them and that brand new democracy? I mean, 
America as a democracy, or really as a constitutional yeah, how republic. Long we've been, how long we've been two, at it? 239 years. Have we got it right yet? No. All right. So, so you expect Iraq to turn on a dime? That's, that's I'm right. Going, how, that's you right. Know, yeah. I, I, I say this all the time, Clay. Americans are so arrogant. We go yeah. to other places and other cultures, yeah. and we say, do it our way. Yeah. Not understanding how that they have their own culture. That's they have their fair. own way of doing things. They have their own way of talking. Yes. Everything. Now, can we inculcate that? And oh, sure. cha- change that absolutely. Sure. That's sure, and that's how we should have went about it, and we didn't go about but, it. But you know, that that's way. largely ignorance, though. I mean, it's, it's no, again, it's, ar- it's arrogance. Clay. Well, it's, no, well, no, no, it's no. Well, arrogance and ignorance. It's 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 arrogance. I guess arrogance is a better word. I mean, because you, a, you, you, because word. you think about it, but it, with the Iraqis. And I guess the ignorance part of it is not understanding because you don't really know unless you open a book or look it up how bad it really was. I mean, you you think when people hear about Saddam Hussein, the first thing they think about is weapons of mass destruction. Yep. Yep. Nobody thinks about the Kurds that he gassed because people you don't hear that. That's not in the lexicon right now. In my province was part of um, the swamps in between the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, which... um, most historians will tell you that was the Garden of Eden. That was the center of mankind at, hmm. at the beginning. The swamp people in, in that area. Saddam Hussein literally drained the swamps to cut out the lifestyle that those people had. Literally. Why? Forced them out. Because if a village or somebody in a village did something against Saddam Hussein, you have to understand water is a lifeline in the desert, mm-hmm. in, in Iraq, in Iraq. If a village or something did something against Osama Dame, he literally dammed up the conduit. It wasn't a conduit. The canal, mm-hmm. the ditch, or whatever it was that fed that community water. That community died. Wow. It either the people either died wow. or they went away. They couldn't. They couldn't water their crops. They couldn't raise their families. They couldn't do anything. Keep their keep their animals. Whatever the case may be. I mean, that's. That's how cruel this was. So, you know, just think about if somebody shut off your water in your home and didn't allow you to get water again. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're We you're got done. a problem. You got a problem. Yeah. And that's the kind of individual he was. We walked, you know, you, you go around Iraq and you see the people. Um, they had a middle class, but they had a poor class, too. And even the middle class, their homes were not. No. I mean, nothing like Sherwood Forest here yeah, or, or, yeah. or, or Lakeview yeah. in New Orleans or the yeah. North Shore or anything yeah. like that. Uh, but it was it was comfortable. Yeah. But then you saw what the poor people looked like. And then you went and looked at all of these palaces that Saddam Opulence. Hussein. Oh, this yeah. was unfriggin' believable. Yeah. yeah. And you can tell what was built by Europeans and what was built by Iraqis. I mean, if you had really? a if you had a if you had a level and a square, you were a master carpenter in Iraq. <laughs> I'm telling you, because there was nothing square <laughs> over there. I mean, it was like a but Saddam Hussein's palaces where they were, right. I mean, they had toilets, they had running water, they had gold inlaid, Italian marble, you know, uh, it was, it, the it, fact it's that someone you. And, and if you could, st- you could stand in one of those palaces and look out and literally see the squalor That's what that I was other say. people were, were it, living it's, in. It is sickening to think that this guy not only lived that way. But he lived that way in plain view you. of the extreme opposite. I mean, his and lifestyle was, to- was totally antithetical to, to the way our, the people let's lived. Let's go back to our leadership and yeah, and, yeah. and in charge. That's what there that you was. Go. So, so now you are the governor of the Wasit province while the nation is 
almost literally on fire, you know, the, because yep. of what's going on on a day. Tell us about your day. Uh, my typical day, uh, I would get up around 0500 in the morning and I'd go into my headquarters. I'd, I'd grab a cup of coffee. I'd go into my headquarters and I'd see if anything happened during the night. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd go to uh, the chow tent that we had and I'd, gra- I'd, I'd generally grab a um, uh, a box of uh, frosted mini wheats. Yeah. And refill my coffee cup. Then I'd jump in my Humvee and I'd go into town, into Alcoot or into the province somewhere. And I normally had a schedule of meetings with uh, local businessmen, local politicians. Uh, I'd go to see my company commanders. I'd go to see my units that were in the field. Uh, I, I walked the streets talking to businessmen, talking to, talking to individual well, Iraqis. How were you able to communicate with them? I, I literally hired, initially I hired a, a local Iraqi. To be your I, translator. To be my translator. I paid him a dollar a day, uh, which was a good salary <laughs> yes, at the time. Yeah. At, at, yeah. at the time. Compared and to it, the dinar, and, and, yeah. And, 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 let, me, let, me go, let me go for Ross props here. This guy kept me out of more problems and trouble and taught me more about the culture and right. the history and who was right. and what to do and everything. Um, we had... Uh, Four, we had four average speakers in my battalion, and we used them to verify or vet the other uh, translators that we hired. So we never told them that these, these Marines spoke um, Arabic, and we had some Russian speakers, too, because they speak a lot of Russian over there, by the way. Really? Uh, well, Russia was one of the suppliers well, right. of all their weapons and that's things right. at the time. That's right. So they had a lot of uh, Russian people in there. Interesting. Uh, um, yeah, you see redhead Iraqis running around. Yeah. You know where that came from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The, uh, uh, the, 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 the yeah, redhead and blue eyes and real dark skin. <laughs> that's where did exactly that come from? Right. Uh, you kind of figured it out after a while. <laughs> the, but the, the, they also... Um, where was I going? Oh, the, the, my interpreters that spoke Iraq, uh, uh, Arabic, I put them in the background and it was speaking, you know, the guys we hired. And later in the day, when we got back to base, we would ask them, did they translate correctly or not? And we and we vetted a lot of guys because sometimes we'd say something, and they'd tell them I was like, completely something else and other things. So but, the, but we finally got uh, later, we finally got um American citizens who were Arabs, uh, contractors who came in. And this other guy I picked up uh, was an Egyptian. Uh, he went by the name of Mel. And he, I can have stories about Mel, too. But <laughs> Mel was, was very good for me. But back to my day. So I would walk around talking with people and trying to get to lay the land and trying to, to accomplish things. Um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, I would be at the government building, and I had open court. Yeah. And anybody could walk up and bring a grievance to me and uh, talk to me about anything they wanted to know, know, what they needed to do. And I would spend two or three hours with them. Every day at the end of the day, I met with my civil affairs group and my company commanders. Um, Generally, I would eat on the run for lunch, and then at night I was – I probably ate almost every night except Sunday night in some Iraqi's home. They invited me to eat eat with them or in a restaurant uh, local, and and I ate with them. And I'd get back to— What did you eat, by the way, when you were eating in their homes? What did I eat? Yeah. Anything that was in front of me. I mean, You never asked? That's a southerner in you right there. There's a lot of sheep, and I will not eat mutton or sheep the rest of my (laughs) life because I hated it. It was just— they don't cook it the way we cook it down here. There was no but, Tony Sasseries over no, there. Right? Well, I carried my yeah, own. I did carry my own. Uh, you did not take I Tony's sure with you over to I Iraq. I sure did. Uh, and, and community coffee, community. too. So I'll plug both of them. Uh, 
Uh, but I, I, I would I would eat with them. Uh, a lot of vegetables, a yeah. lot of uh, things. You know, one of the interesting things I pointed, we both were on the west side. They grew their tomatoes on the ground. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't put steaks up. And, you know, when, you, when I come back home and tell people, what? They just let them grow. Yeah, they let them grow on the ground. They pick right. them off the ground. Uh, um, but I would get back to, to Bay somewhere 10, 11 o'clock at night, and I'd meet with my staff, and I'd sit down at, at – at the computer in my in my headquarters and go through emails and calls or whatever and um i generally get to i tried to get back to base in time for when the showers were on um because we only had a set amount of time we only right. had a set amount of water we sure. literally pulled the water out of the out of the river and and uh ran it through what's called a senator that purified mm-hmm. it and and that's what we drank and we showered with and we all had set to, so you had like three minutes worth of shower time sure and uh so i would try to get back and many times i missed that uh, but I would get back in time and I would spend a couple hours going through emails. I would go to sleep anywhere between one and two o'clock in the morning and get up at five and start mm-hmm. it all over again. And, and then there are other times where I had to go to meet, um, my commanding officer, or I had, to, you know, travel to Al Hala or Baghdad or Al Hay or something, a trip, some other thing. And I mean, that was day in and day out. Sunday was the only day that I, I was really off. Um, I, I, I tried to sleep in till about seven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning, but then I had to get up and take care of all kinds sure. of other stuff. Now, you know, thank God I had some great staff officers. My executive officer took care of the day-to-day bullshit with my Marines yeah, right, right. Um, and, and, and soldiers and sailors. And I had a great logistics officer. My operations guy, my intelligence guy were fantastic. I had one guy I put in charge with looking for weapons of mass destruction mm-hmm. and as well as uh, mass graves. He right. went out and did that. I had uh, I mentioned Captain Dunn a minute ago about uh, him putting together the, the, the uh, uh, judicial system. Uh, Chief Warrant Officer Green, who happened to at one time be the um, the state police, Louisiana State Police trainer at yeah. the State Police Training Academy. I put him in charge of reconstituting the uh, – uh, police force in the province and in the cities and and you know I, I think like i had a great chaplain who's now um uh, um he's the assistant uh, uh to the to the archbishop in new orleans and i i used him to talk with to to make inroads and talk with the the religious leaders sure, over sure, there as well sure. i mean I, I, man clay i was living a, a movie i was talking to sheiks i would i would host prime ministers and generals and uh, ministers of war and ministers of finance coming through my province that have to brief them and talk to them and, and work with them um, all on the fly. I said, I, I, was, I was a Marine. I was taught to, to, you know, to get out of the landing craft and attack the hill right, and, right. and maneuver my Marines around and do this thing. I, I mean, I had no, no clue, no training out of being a thing. I tell you what I did do, though. Um, a lot of people ask me, how did, how did you work that? I, I, I fell back on the 12 points of the scout law. When a decision came to be made, in many cases, I went through trustworthy, law, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, th- brave, th- thrifty, clean, and reverent. And if, you know, if, if any one of those failed somewhere, I knew that, I knew that it was a wrong decision mm-hmm, to make. Mm-hmm. And I tried to use that as a guiding, as a guiding principle for me. Um, I, I, I wanted to be compassionate. I wanted the Iraqis. I wanted Iraq to be for Iraqis, and I told the Iraqis that right. Iraq is for Iraqis, not for Americans. Right. I said, I'm here to help, and I'm here to help you get to where you want to get and how you want to um, uh, to live and, and be represented and, and 
build things and do things. You know, we started a couple of uh, newspapers. We started a couple of radio stations. We started a couple How long of were you there stations. again? I was there from um, uh, the end of March through uh, the uh, beginning of September. That's a hell of a lot. Yeah. I mean, I started going through my notes or stuff. I told you we were trying to write a book. Yeah. And I started going through my notes. I'm like, man, Jesus Christ. I, I, and then, I, you know, I still find out, I talk to some of my Marines or my staff officers, and they tell me something. I go, I didn't know that. <laughs> and, I'm going, and I was clueless right. on a lot of stuff. Right, I didn't right. know. But again, I let the people who were doing things do their job. Yeah. And unless it was That's off, you do. unless it was off to, off to, off to, uh, you know, falling off the cliff, I didn't get involved. Stay I, you know, out of the way. Get good you know, people. Give, give me get the out brief. Tell way. me what's going on and, and we'll, we'll move out from that. I want to ask you about something because I, I already know we're going to do a part two, but we'll do a part two from a clandestine uh, location where. Ah, that was my idea, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, that was his idea, by the way. <laughs> uh, you talked earlier about. God having spoken to you and you said you wanted to go back to that. I think so, that's a perfect place to wrap up part so one I, of our interview. I, I, I told you that, I, you know, God talked to me and told me he, you know, I was in a place and I thought one thing, I thought, you know, being a commander of a, a military unit and leading them into battle and, and the glory and all, you know, right. the, that kind of thing. Sure. And I'm getting back one of my late nights, probably in the beginning of August or so, and it is getting up to 132, 133 degrees and, you know, 90 degrees, you know, it, it would drop down to 90, 95 at night and you were freezing your ass off. <laughs> I'm literally, you were cold. Wow. Um, but I, um, one of my things is I went, you know, before I went to hit the rack, I would go to the piss tube. Now, this is literally a tube in the ground that you went to take a leak in. Yeah. And I would go there and take a leak. And I'm walking back to my, uh, my hooch, and I looked up and I picked up Orion, just, you know, the constellation Orion again. And God said, see, I told you. And I mean, I stopped dead in my tracks going, you arrogant little son of a bitch. You didn't know what you want. God had a plan for you. And he put me there to lead the Iraqis into a better place. Wow, and I didn't realize it. And again, I said I had no training for this, other than. But you did. I, you know, I, I, you know, people have told me that before, and I'm. Well, going, I mean, but you, but but it's it's not formal training on running a nation, but the the life circumstances were all yeah, a part yeah. of something to prepare you for where you ultimately ended up being. You know, I I don't want to sound arrogant, and because I I don't I I. I, I you know, at the risk of sounding humble, I don't want to say that because I, I had a lot of people that helped me too. Oh, a lot sure, of my, sure. My, my staff and my Marines and my sailors, they were fantastic. Um, but apparently people. you were selected for that spot because you said when you walked up to your superior officer, he knew your name and how yeah. to pronounce your name, which, and you get that for those of, of you who are from this part of the world, you don't yeah, just Smiley's know. Got, Smiley's done a, right. You know, he's, he's had his job done for for two weeks right. just about name. You just you don't know how to pronounce Kuvion if you've never heard it. Yeah. Kuvalon, how do you? Yeah, Kavalon, Kavalon. Yeah, so, yeah, I've had it all. So you know that's all a part of it. And you know we'll come back and talk more about the Iraq experience. But if you had to sum up your Wasit province experience in a phrase or two or three. How would you do it? The most satisfying time of my life. I think I really made a difference in a lot of people, not just my Marine soldiers and sailors, but I made a lot of a difference in a lot of people's lives in Iraq. 
Uh, I'm hoping, hopefully, they still see. They do still see that because I get I get conversation from those from those people all the time. Really, you know, Facebook and the email is amazing. I yeah, mean, they still they still call me for advice or something. I mean, I don't get it on a day to day basis, sure. but you know, still you know, every now and then something will come up. And, it's been you know, fifteen years. Yeah. And they'll, oh, actually, they'll, no. This was look, this was two thousand three. They, they right? look so. on Facebook and see that my kid had a had a, had a had a had a had a child, and I get congratulations <laughs> on my grandson. I mean, I, I mean, literally stuff like that. Those those people still have a, a, a thing. Um, uh, I, I, I I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say this not to. You know, I'm not bragging, and because it's one of the things I told Derek. About, you know, we're working on the book. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for Derek, by Derek the way. Derek Lewis, who's, who's uh, a previous guest on the podcast. Uh, thank you for Derek, by the way. And he, uh, I told him, I said, you know, the people over there in Iraq call it the golden age of Kuvion. Wow. And, and it's, I, I mean, you want to talk about humbling. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what? I said, yeah, I said, and they say, the people that came after you and what's going on, I think people still talk about Colonel Kuvion would have done it this way. And wow. and if that's a legacy that I could I can live up to, think still. about that. But think about that. Think I, I, about I, that. I, I, it it's 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 overwhelming. <laughs> you know. You know. You know, it, you know. It's real funny. And I'll tell and I'll tell you this. We can sign off on this one. So I'm the I'm the governor of Iraq. And while I was walking around over there, the crowds parted. People poured to come talk to me, to touch me, to shake my hand. To the crowds parted, and and we come. We get home, <laughs> we land in New Orleans, and my wife, you know, she greets me, I think, great reunion, and we come home, and it was a Sunday night, and uh, David, the garbage got to go out. <laughs> <laughs> Put the, the next, trash out, Governor. Yeah, yeah, take the trash out. And the next, the next, and it was really surreal, the next Saturday was at home, LSU home game, and a football game, so i Man, I'm all anxious about getting getting back and watching the Tigers. Well, we go to our seats. Uh, I get there early because I like to I like to watch them warm up on a thing, and the crowd starts filling in. It fills up, and I end up having to go to the restroom or go and get a do- hot dog or something. And I started walking, and nobody knows who the hell I am. Nobody could care less. Bumping into <laughs> get me, the no hell out of my way. Away, yeah, that's right. All of a sudden, I'm Mister Nobody that's all exactly over right. again, and and that's a real. <laughs> That's now that's a real, humbling. That's, that's a real drop back down yeah. to earth experience. I got to tell you well, that. We'll talk more about some of the current stuff going on, uh, you know, when you come back on the show. But I'm looking forward to it, man. Thanks for your service, and we really get to cut up. And again, all y'all got to do is hear what we do on a Friday night or something <laughs> when we get together. But I appreciate you, brother. Look forward to having you back. Absolutely, Clay. Enjoyed it, man. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. This is the Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. All right, welcome back. Wrapping up another good one. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Colonel Kuvion. He's a really good man. And again, his service to this country is something that we should all admire. I truly do. You know, we get together every few weeks or so, 
and we sit and we'll have a cigar and a cocktail and we'll just talk about life. He's just one of those down-to-earth guys. And I've told this story hundreds of times, it feels like, when I had the concept of smoke him, the first person I called was him because I trust him. And if it was a bad idea, he's enough of a friend to tell me the truth Otherwise. that it's a bad idea. Right. And he loved the idea, and that part was good. You know, we're, we're here in the studio doing this close to the show, and I think in the coming weeks we really do have some big things planned that we can Definitely. finally get going. We've been talking about it forever, and we're finally beginning to get that going. Now, we still can't tell you <laughs> what, what it is, even though we know, but it's going to be great. But one thing we can tell you is the Baton Rouge Business Report and 225 Magazine are getting ready to launch something very innovative for restaurants. And our guest on next week's show is Julio Malera, who will tell you about how you, if you're a person who goes to restaurants for business or pleasure, you're going to love this piece of technology that's coming. And he'll explain it to you. And in our world, because there are so many business lunches, it's going to be great because we do lunches with people all over the state. Right. And, and that's not an exaggeration. It's the truth. We're always places taking clients to lunch. And this will probably shave 10, 15 minutes off that experience. Each time. Each time. So that's great. So Julio is our guest next week. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button. We tell you every week to download the show for free. And uh, something big on that line coming in the very near future. So uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm going to do that. And you guys enjoy the rest of yours. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for tuning in to The Clay Young Show on iTunes, on the Talk 107.3 mobile app, and on the the site that's sweeping the podcast world. <laughs> Podcast225.com. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.